Hey, everybody. It is Monday, December 18th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu on what is the last productive week of the year, Jill? <laughs> Good to know. Uh, <laughs> and I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Moshe, some big news. We're taking the podcast on the road today, heading to D.C. for some pretty big interviews. Yes, we have a White House official as well as... We can tell you guys right now, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, will be joining us for an interview um, on the pod, and we'll bring that to you tomorrow. But uh, we're going to be on the train this morning, Jill, prepping for the big big interview. (laughs) And we'll have a little bit more on that later in this podcast as well. For now, though, let's get to some headlines. The Nikki Haley surge appears to be happening in New Hampshire as that state's primary approaches next month. The state of the 2024 race as voting nears. Israel investigates how some of its soldiers accidentally killed three Israeli hostages waving a white flag in Gaza. We're also learning more about the cause of death for Friends actor Matthew Perry. Canada announcing a date for when citizens can only buy electric cars in line with what we're seeing around the world. We're also learning more about a new FDA investigation into whether lead was intentionally added to some applesauce brands. And this co-host announced her exit from America's most popular game show this weekend. Who is Maya Bialik, Jill? (laughs) Yep, we'll tell you what we know. And some people got stuck literally at the happiest place on Earth, which means I don't think it was so happy for about 30 minutes last week. We'll explain. Plus, Moshe is on this day in history. Jill, we have a holiday themed on this day, as well as a Long Island themed Billy Joel factoid for you. We'll tell you about the song that he hates, one of his most popular songs and why he hates it. So if I had to guess, I'd say Piano Man. He has issues with that song, but this is another song <laughs> that, 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 that apparently he's, He doesn't like anything he's done. <laughs> uh, he, he plays it for us, but he's like, ah, oh, he's kicking himself over. Okay, let's start with some politics here. One month out from the beginning of voting to determine the presidential nominees. And we've got some good news and some bad news for Donald Trump based on new polling. While Trump still leads in both Iowa and New Hampshire, the states that vote first and second next month, it appears that Nikki Haley is having a major surge in New Hampshire. So that is where she has consolidated much of the non-Trump vote and has emerged as the top alternative to him there. A CBS News YouGov poll released Sunday found that 29% of likely GOP primary voters in New Hampshire would vote for Haley. 44% say that they are backing Trump. She has now more than doubled her support over the fall and early winter and is in within 15 points of him. She recently received a big endorsement from New Hampshire's governor, Chris Sununu, who has pledged to put 110 percent behind her in the run up to the state's January 23rd primary. Haley gets the best marks from voters on being seen as likable and reasonable, and she runs nearly even with Trump on being prepared Notable, considering that he was already president, she has been running in part on electability and is now seen as the most electable of Trump's challengers. As I say that, it is sort of funny, actually, that (laughs) that he was President Moshe and people think that she's just as prepared. It says a lot of things, Jill, depending on (laughs) on 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 how people answer that question. Yes. What's viewed as necessary these days to be president of the United States? 
Haley has been given a boost by New Hampshire's more moderate electorate relative to Iowa. She's made inroads among self-described moderates and independents, running close to Trump among them now. Independents can and often do vote in the GOP primary, which is really important uh, to note because that is not how every state runs their primaries. And it is these groups who express more openness in principle to a candidate dissimilar to Trump if he is not the nominee. In Iowa, however, Trump still holds a runaway lead. Haley lags behind Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has the endorsement of Iowa's governor. According to the poll, 58% of likely caucus goers support Trump, while 22% back DeSantis and 13% say that they are likely to go with Haley. Voters there overwhelmingly see Trump as a strong leader, where his backers say that he represents Iowa values. Yeah, and he's boosted by the electorate in Iowa, where nearly half of Republicans who are voting say they are part of the MAGA movement. Remember, Iowa Republicans, much more conservative, much more evangelical. Iowa caucus winners in recent years, Jill, Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, none of whom became the nominee, but all of whom won Iowa. So they tend to go with the most conservative um, candidate, typically, which is why Ron DeSantis is making his big push there. So it's unclear how much momentum any of the candidates will get out of there. Um, New Hampshire, as you noted, has more independence. Uh, Voters in New Hampshire, Jill, as I've covered a couple primaries up there, like to say, Iowa picks corn, New Hampshire picks presidents. That's the uh, catchphrase up there, uh, because typically the winner of New Hampshire is more likely to go on to become the nominee than the winner of the Iowa caucuses. And that's why Haley is making the big bet up there. You were mentioning the poll. She's now within 15 points of Trump. Notably in that poll, Jill, Chris Christie has 10% of New Hampshire voters. Uh, It's likely that if somehow he wasn't to move forward or endorse uh, Haley before that primary, he could move a lot of his votes over to her. And certainly there has been an undercurrent of that in the Republican Party saying, listen, if we're going to go with one alternative, let's go with one alternative and not repeat 2016 when a dozen uh, candidates ran against Trump and he was able to win the nomination with, you know, not even near 50 percent of the vote because everyone was splitting up the vote. So we'll see what happens with DeSantis and whether Christie has any sort of surge up there. But right now, it looks like Haley has the momentum. Uh, Christie was on CBS uh, on Sunday going after Haley, saying she's being too accommodating to Trump. She's not critical enough of him. And so he seems to be making his last attack on Haley, trying to win people over to his side. He also sees New Hampshire as his key to victory um, in the nomination. It came as Christie was among those over the weekend attacking Trump on comments Trump made over illegal immigration over the weekend at a rally in New Hampshire on Saturday. Trump said that millions of illegal migrants coming into the U.S. are, quote, poisoning the blood of this country. They poison mental institutions. They poison prisons. And they're coming into this country from Africa, from Asia, from all over the world. Uh, Christie called those remarks disgusting. The Biden campaign compared it to rhetoric of Adolf Hitler, who infamously talked about Jews and non-whites poisoning the blood of Germans. And this is not the first time Trump has used the word poison the blood uh, when it comes to talking about undocumented migrants coming into this country. He's also referred to them as vermin uh, recently. Other Republicans, though, dismissing the rhetoric, Lindsey Graham speaking on Sunday, saying he's not always a fan of how Trump says things, but the point isn't the language Trump is using. The point is the issue. And people should not be focused on his language. They should be focused on the larger issue of immigration, which is a huge problem in this country right now. Um, Jill, that's one thing that both New Hampshire and Iowa Republicans share in common. We talked about their differences. Uh, But when you ask them, do they want a GOP nominee who will deport millions of undocumented migrants? 
it's 85% in Iowa, 80% in New Hampshire. That's the number of people who want a nominee who will deport millions of people. So the policies here, they agree on. The rhetoric, though, they disagree on, especially coming from Trump here. Uh, and the concern, of course, when you talk about poisoning blood, vermin, etc., you're referring to people as below human. And that, of course, um, creates its own issues when that rhetoric turns into reality. We discussed this in one of our newsletters last week, just the whole immigration debate. And it is notable how much further to the right the discussion has gotten, even in the Democratic Party. It wasn't that long ago that we were talking about paths to citizenship for undocumented migrants, for children of migrants. And now the discussion in both parties has really centered around strengthening the border, building a wall or just beefing up security at the border. Uh, Incredible just how a failure to actually address this issue in any sort of comprehensive, responsible way years ago has created kind of this crisis that we're seeing at this time and really driven the conversation again, so right politically. Yeah, I covered Washington jail during the Bush administration, a Republican, George W. Bush, who came in talking about a path to citizenship. And he was criticized by members of his own party from Republicans on the right being like, Bush, you're too soft on this. Now, what's interesting is it's not even you know, a debate within the Republican Party anymore. Um, it's a debate within the Democratic Party. And you see that Biden even came in rhetorically saying, I'm going to reverse a lot of Trump policies. And guess what? He's actually following through with some of Trump's immigration policies that Democrats were criticizing just a few years ago because the crisis at the border has gotten so bad. Now, that said, you know, we can have a whole separate discussion about the former president's rhetoric here. But immigration appears to be up there right now as the other most significant issue uh, beyond the economy that voters will be making their choice on next November. All right. Now to the Middle East, where we're learning more about how three Israeli hostages were shot and killed by Israeli Defense Forces troops on Friday in this tragic accident during combat with Hamas in Gaza. The IDF says the three Israelis were mistakenly identified as a threat. This grave mistake has since prompted an outpouring of anger and grief from Israelis. The three killed on Friday were later identified as Elan Shamriz, Yotam Haim, and Samir Talalka. They were all taken by Hamas on October 7th at the start of the war, along with more than 200 other hostages. It's still unclear how these three hostages ended up in the Shajaya area of Gaza, a hotbed for Hamas fighters, and where an active firefight was happening on Friday. An IDF spokesperson said the three either fled or were abandoned by terrorists who had held them captive. They add that all three men were shirtless. They had a stick with a white cloth on it, which indicates surrendering in the battlefield. A threatened IDF soldier opened fire at the group, immediately killing two of the hostages and injuring a third who ran back into the building. A cry for help in Hebrew prompted a commander to issue a ceasefire, but the third hostage died after another round of gunfire. The official noted that there was a building in the vicinity with the markings of SOS on it. Israeli officials took responsibility for the action, saying that, quote, this was against our rules of engagement. Officials say they have been dealing with Hamas fighters in the area in civilian attire, and they've been trying to draw Israeli troops into traps by claiming that they are Israeli hostages. Still, the IDF saying that they will not let this happen again and that this was against the rules of engagement. It comes as the Israeli government faced calls for a ceasefire from some of its closest European allies on Sunday 
as more countries are now expressing concern about Israeli military conduct regarding civilians. Israeli protesters over the weekend urged their government to renew hostage negotiations with Gaza's Hamas rulers. Israel also expected to face pressure to scale back major combat operations when U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visits today. Washington is expressing growing unease with civilian casualties, even as it provides vital military and diplomatic support. Yeah, that's something that's on the agenda uh, for us when we talk to Secretary of State Blinken for an interview later today, Jill, that we'll bring you on the podcast tomorrow. Uh, Basically, what is the state of play now, 11 weeks into the war? Uh, There's been a lot of reports that we've told you about, about the U.S. trying to basically try to find a date certain to end this thing or wind down this war. The Israelis have been pushing back on that. So we'll talk to Blinken about that. By the way, if any of you have any questions, we'll be checking our email um, on the way down. You can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at mo.news with your suggested questions for the Secretary of State. Mosh, we have a Google Doc. There's like a thousand questions in it. Yeah. <laughs> There's already a thousand questions for We're like a very limited time. Down. Well, listen, I always like more ideas uh, up until the edge. Mosh, it's just such an incredible opportunity to, to speak to a real player here who's involved directly in this conflict that we cover every single day. Yeah, we've been following him as he's gotten hundreds of thousands of frequent flyer miles uh, to the region uh, and around the region (laughs) over the course of the past few months. But much more seriously here, Jill, that tragedy that unfolded on Friday, there are a lot of questions being asked inside Israel about how that happened. Uh, Protocol, at the same time, you mentioned the Shijai area has been a hotbed of uh, exchanges a lot of booby traps, etc. And so they're figuring out the best strategy on the battlefield to be able to manage these types of incidents and ensure that innocent people um, on both sides are not dying. Quickly, I was listening to a report from the Times of Israel uh, from their podcast, and one of the reporters said, the tragedy here as well is imagine if this had gone different and they were able to rescue three hostages, what that would have done for just morale um, and, and this effort yeah, for a country that really just feels like it is bad news upon bad news upon bad news. So it was just a, a that stuck with me in terms of the, the way that Israelis are really feeling what happened over the weekend. Yeah. And one of the reasons why so many Israelis are saying, listen, uh, let's go for an exchange here. We don't want to see any more of these hostages die, especially as the war has not stretched on 11 weeks. Remember, we're almost double the length of time that those initial prisoner exchanges happened um, a number of weeks ago. It does come, Jill, as we learned on Sunday that Israel discovered the largest tunnel shaft so far in Gaza. It's right next to a busy crossing or what was a busy crossing into Israel. It is also leading to new questions about how Israeli surveillance missed such huge preparations by Hamas. The entryway to the tunnel, just a few hundred yards away from the Israeli border, a major Israeli military base. Uh, Apparently, this tunnel stretches two and a half miles and is wide enough for cars to pass through. They took a number of reporters on a tour of it, of the entryway, um, over the weekend. Again, this is very close to a part of the border where militants blew through the Israeli security defense. A huge circular cement opening located under a garage. So that's why it was missed by satellites and drones. Twice the height and three times the width of other tunnels. Apparently it was overseen by Mohammed Sinwar. That's the brother of the Gaza Hamas boss, Yahya Sinwar. And apparently this connected to what they call the uh, Gaza underground, the 300 plus miles of tunnels under the Gaza Strip. We're also monitoring the humanitarian situation um, in Gaza as that unfolds. Uh, Right now, the latest estimates are nearly 19,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war so far. 
70% of whom are women or children. That's according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health out of Ramallah, out there in the West Bank. That includes 300 health sector workers, 86 journalists, and 135 employees of UNRWA, the UN Refugee Agency, that deals with the Gaza Strip. Uh, there's been pressure on the Israelis, and over the weekend, they opened up a second humanitarian crossing into Gaza that allows trucks to totally go through with aid. And so they hope that that helps relieve the situation for the 2 million plus people who live in the Gaza Strip, the vast majority of whom are displaced and many of whom have lost their homes and businesses. Two key allies for Israel over the weekend are now stepping closer to calling for a ceasefire here, what they call a sustainable ceasefire, the Germans and the Brits who've basically been in line with the U.S. so far in not pressuring Israel into a ceasefire. The foreign minister for Germany and the foreign minister for the U.K. had a piece out over the weekend saying, we're not calling for an immediate ceasefire, but we are calling for what we believe is a sustainable ceasefire. The belief being that an immediate ceasefire would benefit Hamas, but how do we get a ceasefire that uh, is sustainable on both sides. So starting to see some movement there from the Germans and the Brits. Um, as again, we mentioned, the Americans head to the region again today to continue the conversations with the Israelis as to how soon they can wrap up the war so far. The Israelis have said, listen, our mission is destroying Hamas and we're not stopping till that is done. And they have said that could take up until the end of January into February. Uh, we'll see what the Americans and the rest of the world uh, have to say about that in the coming days and weeks. All right, before we get to today's speed read, I want to thank our sponsor this week, Factor. If you're like us, if you're like me and Jill, it's a busy time right now. You're trying to pack everything in before the holidays, finish everything you need to do for work, uh, maybe planning a vacation. The last thing you want to worry about right now is meal prep. Well, I'm happy to say that our partner this week is going to help you with all of that, or at least one piece of that. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. Both of us have been using them in our respective homes for ready-to-made delivered meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They're never frozen, chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat factor meals delivered straight to your refrigerator. I've been loving them, especially a beef dish I had recently and a chicken dish. They also have great cold-pressed juices, and they're ready in just two minutes. All you have to do is heat them up and enjoy. So treat yourself this holiday season amid all the craziness to ready-made meals. Over at Factormeals.com, you can choose from 35-plus chef-crafted meals every week uh, made for your lifestyle and meal preferences. So I definitely urge all of you to check it out. You can head to Factormeals.com. That is F-A-C-T-O-R, Factormeals.com slash MoNews50 to get 50% off your first order. The code again is MoNews50, M-O-N-E-W-S 50, over at Factormeals.com slash MoNews50 for 50% off. All right, time now for the speed read from NPR. The FDA is investigating whether lead linked to three brands of applesauce purees was added intentionally. This is according to an official. Over the past several weeks, three brands of cinnamon-flavored purees have been under scrutiny after concerns that the cinnamon inside of the popular children's foods contained lead and sickened kids. An FDA official tells Politico that we are still in the midst of our investigation, but so far all of the signals we are getting lead to an intentional act on the part of someone in the supply chain, and we're trying to sort of figure that out. There are multiple working theories, one of which is that adulteration was economically motivated, meaning that ingredients were modified so that companies can manufacture a cheap item 
and sell it for a higher price. So not trying to actively poison people, but I guess poisoning people to make profit here. Either way, pretty concerning. Uh, the brands they're looking at right now are Wanabana apple cinnamon fruit puree pouches, Schnucks brand cinnamon flavored applesauce pouches, and Weiss brand cinnamon applesauce pouches. They were all recalled in the fall after four children in North Carolina had elevated blood lead levels. The FDA says that they've had officials visiting an Austro Foods facility in Ecuador. That's where some of the children's food was distributed. Austro Foods and Wanabana USA said their investigation determined that the cinnamon inside the children's snacks was the root cause of the high lead levels. The feds saying last week it's working with Ecuadorians right now to gather information on the cinnamon supplier and whether any more of the cinnamon contained in the recalled foods was used in other products exported to the U.S. As of last week, the FDA received 65 reports of adverse events potentially linked to the product, all of which were related to kids six and under. We'll stay on top of this all week, but just to repeat here, the three brands, Wanabana, apple cinnamon fruit puree pouches, Schnucks, cinnamon-flavored applesauce pouches, and Weiss brand cinnamon applesauce pouches. From NBC News, a boat carrying dozens of migrants trying to reach Europe capsized off the coast of Libya, leaving more than 60 people dead, including women and children. This is according to the U.N. Migration Agency. Saturday's shipwreck was the latest tragedy in this part of the Mediterranean Sea, a key but dangerous route for migrants seeking a better life in Europe. Thousands have died, according to officials. The UN's International Organization for Migration said that the central Mediterranean continues to be one of the world's most dangerous migration routes. Libya has in recent years emerged as the dominant transit point for migrants fleeing war and poverty in Africa and the Middle East. More than 28,000 Africans have died or disappeared in the Mediterranean since 2014. Many set off for countries like Italy and Greece in one of Europe's biggest challenges right now. Yeah, so far this year, more than 2,000 people have died on the Central European route. The UN tracks migration movements. Nearly 15,000 migrants uh, this year, including 1,000 women and 500 children, were intercepted and returned to Libya. Human traffickers in recent years have benefited from the chaos in Libya. That's where you basically have two governments. It's been chaotic there since the fall of Gaddafi. Uh, and so you have a lot of people coming through Libya from Africa, as well as other parts of the Middle East. These migrants are often crowded onto ill-equipped vessels, including rubber boats set off on these risky sea voyages. We told you, you know, earlier this fall about the tragedy of the uh, boat off the coast of Greece. But these people are desperate uh, to make it uh, to Europe, often giving these smugglers everything they have. And those intercepted and returned to Libya are often then held in government-run detention centers that are rife with abuses, uh, forced labor, and other terrible uh, crimes against humanity, according to the UN. Um, Jill, you know, we often talk about the U.S. southern border and the migrant crisis there. Europe continues to deal with its own version of it uh, from Africa. From the L.A. Times, we have learned that Friends actor Matthew Perry died from the acute effects of ketamine, an anesthetic with psychedelic properties. The L.A. County Medical Examiner's Office published the results of an autopsy report Friday. Perry was found unresponsive in a hot tub at his home in Los Angeles on October 28th. He was 54 years old. He had publicly struggled with drinking and drug use for decades. The medical examiner's office said that drowning, coronary artery disease, and the effects of opioid also contributed to his death. But the autopsy ascribed his death primarily to the acute effects of ketamine. 
Ketamine is a powerful anesthetic that has become increasingly popular as an alternative therapy for depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other hard-to-treat mental health problems, and it can also be used recreationally. Yeah, in this case, the autopsy report found that Perry had been on ketamine infusion therapy, but the ketamine in his system could not have been from his last known therapy session where they do it um, supervised by a medical professional. Uh, That last session was more than a week and a half before he died. The level of ketamine they found in Perry's blood was equivalent to the amount that would be used during general anesthesia. So a significant amount there. Um, Jill, as you noted, Perry did not shy away from speaking publicly about his struggles with drinking and drug use through the years. It often led to hospitalization. By his own account, Perry had said he had spent half of his life in treatment and in rehab. In his memoir that came out uh, just last year, he shared some of the health challenges uh, that he had over the years, including medical episodes from pneumonia uh, to issues with the colon, two weeks in a coma, um, a half dozen stomach surgeries. So he struggled uh, for a long time here. From Bloomberg, the Canadian government poised to pass rules requiring all new vehicles sold in the country to be zero emissions by 2035. The federal government will announce the regulation in the coming days with the aim of phasing out the sale of new combustion vehicles. The UK introduced an EV sales mandate with similar timelines, including a target of 100 percent of new sales by 2035 in September. China and South Korea also have mandates. Global EV sales now make up about 13% of all vehicle sales and are likely to rise to between 40 and 45% of the market by the end of the decade. Jill, I learned today from my reading of the Toronto Star newspaper that Canada actually drives the least fuel-efficient cars in the world. They beat the U.S. by just slight margin in how inefficient our cars are because of the cold environment, cheap gas up there, uh, the percentage of trucks people drive up there, uh, and no toll roads in Canada. People like to have their uh, free expressways up there. So this is a big move by the Canadians. Uh, And as you mentioned, the UK has gone with this 2035 date. And we've seen more than a dozen US states, New York and California, recently announced uh, mandates by 2035, which as of January was only 11 years away, where all new cars have to be electric. The Biden administration does want to do something federally. Uh, Republicans in Congress have been pushing back on that. In April, they proposed new tailpipe emission limits that would effectively compel automakers to ensure that two out of every three cars and light trucks are electric by 2032. That's been a huge contentious issue. Uh, Trump and Republicans have been pushing back on that. So we'll see what happens federally. But interestingly, we are seeing it happen on the state level, and it appears on a national level, Canada and the UK uh, have gone first. From the New York Times, Maya Bialik said on Friday that she has been removed as host of the popular game show Jeopardy. It came as Sony, which produces the show, confirmed that it would leave Ken Jennings as the sole host. Bialik began hosting Jeopardy on an interim basis in 2021 and on a permanent one last year. She wrote on social media, quote, Sony has informed me that I will no longer be hosting the syndicated version of Jeopardy. I'm deeply grateful for the opportunity to have been part of the Jeopardy family. Sony said the decision for Jennings to continue alone was made to, quote, maintain continuity for our viewers. The company thanked Bialik, known for her acting on Blossom and Big Bang Theory, for her contributions and said that it hoped to continue to work with her on primetime specials without elaborating. 
which means they're not happening. Yeah, I I don't know how likely that is. Um, Remember, you know, we lost Alex Trebek a couple of years ago, and it's been a bit chaotic at Jeopardy uh, for a bit there. They were trying a whole bunch of celebrity hosts, uh, Katie Couric, LeVar Burton, uh, Dr. Oz. Uh, Then they had a plan for the executive producer, Mike Richards, to take over. Uh, He was pushed out. Then Bialik filled in, was splitting duties with Ken Jennings. You might know Ken Jennings. He's won more than $4 million on Jeopardy. He won 74 shows in a row. Uh, So he's sort of the most famous Jeopardy champion, which is one of the reasons they wanted to try him um, as a host. They feel he wasn't ready, so they tried to split this dual situation, and now they feel um, he's ready. He has won over much of the hardcore viewers. Also, he knows all the answers. Uh, So for flow purposes, if you've been watching Jeopardy, uh, he tends to keep the show moving much quicker. Uh, That said, you know, Bialik had her fans. She does have a neuroscience degree, uh, the Big Bang Theory fan base. Uh, But there were times where she didn't know the answers. She's constantly going to the judges to determine things. There were some awkward delays, etc. There was speculation online over the weekend, Jill, that because she's been recently outspoken for Israel, that that might be the reason she lost her job, um, given how long this was in process here it appears it was not that it appears it has much more to do with what the regular jeopardy viewers want and some internal production things that were going on at jeopardy and finally from people magazine disney world likely not the happiest place on earth for patrons who chose to ride expedition everest last week according to multiple reports documented by unofficial disney park news sites like the disney food blog and all ears Riders were stuck on the Animal Kingdom roller coaster for over half an hour because of technical problems. Expedition Everest is a thrill ride that involves train cars going up steep inclines and drops and has segments where the ride vehicle goes backwards or is in complete darkness. God, I mean, could you imagine being stuck on that for half an hour? Yeah, apparently on Thursday afternoon, the train car was stuck on a steep incline between two mountain peaks. So pretty scary situation there for those who were stuck. They don't appear to have known what caused the ride to stop, but there were some technical issues, which are not uncommon uh, for some of the more complicated attractions at Disney. Eventually, they got everything running again. But I guess, you know, you take it for granted that when you get on the ride, you'll end the ride the way the ride was meant to be, and you won't be in one of these situations. But we've always seen that footage of like people stuck upside down on certain rides, etc. And I guess that's uh, part of the risk that you take, Jill, when you get on a, a thrill ride, be less than thrilling. Or super thrilling, I guess, depending on what you're looking for. If that's how you get your kicks, I, Moshe. I do not get my kicks that way. I am not. I, I do not. I am not a roller coaster person. <laughs> all right, let's end here with On This Day in History. We begin in 1620. The English ship, the Mayflower. We all learned about that boat in elementary school. It arrived at modern-day Plymouth, Massachusetts. Um, they'd actually, the boat had gotten there in November of 1620, but they were sending expeditions out, trying to figure out where to land. But it's on this day in history where they arrived at Plymouth to begin their new colony. All right, on this day in 1892, Tchaikovsky's ballet, The Nutcracker. You might have heard of it. It publicly premiered in St. Petersburg, Russia and received some really negative reviews. Apparently, people did not like The Nutcracker when it premiered, though it's now considered a classic. I imagine many of you might be going to see it or uh, be watching it this uh, Christmas season. Just so you know, Nutcracker. People just weren't into it in the beginning, Jill. Speaking of another holiday staple, on this day in 1966, the TV special How the Grinch Stole Christmas, adapted from the Dr. Seuss book, aired for the first time and would become an annual tradition. 
Jill, a major loss on this day in history in 1997. On this day, we lost Chris Farley, the comedian, SNL actor, uh, died at the age of 33. Jill, that was 26 years ago. He would be 59 years old today. And on this day in 2019, just a few years ago, the House impeached Donald Trump for the first time. This is related to the accusations and crimes of him uh, trying to get Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden um, in exchange for aid uh, and then obstructing the congressional investigation. Uh, We actually have a deep dive on the history of impeachment over on Mo News Premium. Again, this was the first of the two Trump impeachments. The next one would come in 2021 related to uh, trying to overturn the election. All right, a bit of music history to end the pod. On this day in 1969, 54 years ago today, the Jackson 5 released their debut studio album featuring I Want You Back. Uh, Jill, the title of the album, Diana Ross Presents the Jackson 5. I never would have guessed that. Get to give them the extra juice, <laughs> these kids, these kids from Gary, Indiana. And finally, 34 years ago this weekend... Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire hit number one this weekend in 1989. Jill, it perfectly covers the 40 years from 1949 to 1989. Billy's saying it wasn't intentional to cover the whole history of the Cold War. It was just convenient that the Soviet Union decided to close up shop um, that year (laughs) as he finished that song. Notably, as I was digging into this, learned a couple fun facts. One, Billy was trying to write a country song. And as he was writing the country song, uh, was trying to figure out the melody, couldn't quite figure it out. And then Sean Lennon, John Lennon's son, was in the studio and they were talking about the world and talking about history. And uh, Sean Lennon was saying, you know, the world's so complicated today. And Billy's like, yeah, it's been complicated for a long time. And Sean Lennon, again, son of John Lennon, was like, yeah, but you grew up in the 50s and everyone knows nothing happened in the 1950s. And Billy's like, no, stuff happened in the 1950s. And he started to list off things that happened in the 1950s. Well, as he put that list together, it gave him inspiration for the song. And then he had to write the music around the lyrics through the decades. But it turns out that Billy didn't love the song that he wrote. He didn't love the music here. Here's a bit of him talking about it with Howard Stern a few years ago. When you write songs, you hear music first, not the lyrics. I hear the music first. The only time that changed was on one song. Uh, uh, we didn't start the fire. That's right. And, w- and you hate that song. I don't hate the song. I think it's probably the worst musical thing I've ever written. Because you didn't write the music first. Yeah, but also you listen, I mean, try to find the melody. So, so you, broke your, you broke your winning way of, I mean, the song was a huge hit, but it, you broke your way of performing. You hear the music first, and then you try to find the lyrics. And this time you did it the opposite. Yeah, now I you wrote, hate the song. I wrote the words, I mm, hate the song. I just don't think it's very good musically. I don't, I don't think it's much of a melody. You, you know, perform that in, in uh, concerts, though, right? Yeah, we do it live. Yeah. Is it difficult to remember the words? Yes. I think it's tremendously difficult. I, as long as I can pick up the first word of, this, of whatever verse is coming up. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray. Right. South Pacific, Walter Winston, Joe DiMaggio. Joe McCarthy, Rick Nixon, Studebaker Television, North Korea, South Korea, Malibu, Monroe. And then, then what? And I'm looking at the audience hoping to see somebody mouthing the words. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jill, I love the snoring he does that as he's like playing the melody. It's like he's mocking his own song. <laughs> I love everything about that interaction that we just listened to. Uh-huh. I don't even know which part to mention. But the fact that he has trouble remembering the words, it's so relatable. And that he's like, 
I don't know if he's joking, but then he's, <laughs> he's waiting for somebody in the audience to just be mouthing it. Yeah. Uh, that is hysterical. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, we talked, I think, on a podcast earlier this year about how Paul Simon hates performing uh, You Can Call Me Al. You know, like a lot of these artists have these like famous songs and like didn't think that they would be hits. I mean, you mentioned earlier Piano Man too. Like, you know, he never thought Piano Man would become like the classic song played in every bar in the world, uh, right? And then they're like, oh, damn, now I'm stuck performing this for the rest of time. <laughs> Look, he has that residency at MSG that is about to end. You got to give the people what they want to hear, right? They're coming for Piano Man. That They're coming for those yeah, songs. And, and, and I think he's one of those artists that does do that. Jill, just to give you a sense of age, by the way. So he wrote, We Didn't Start the Fire, which takes you from 1949 to 1989. We are now 34 years removed from the end of that song. So we almost have another 40-year history um, to write here. And actually, Billy's been asked, like, hey, will you write an extension to, you know, We Didn't Start the Fire to take us through the next, you know, decades? And he's like, nope. I finished in 89. <laughs> it's like, I'm so done. It's like, I was done with the song when I wrote it. All right. Well, speaking of done, I think that's a wrap for us right now. Mosh, uh, a big thank you to everyone for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Jill, you can sort of take this podcast every day and help tweak it into an extension of We Didn't Start the Fire. If there's a fan out there that wants to do that, because our pod, it lasts from 30 to 40 minutes. And you really just need to take like one news story a week that we do and throw it into that song. But I won't give you that project. I know I, I have seen versions of like, we didn't start the fire continued through the 90s and 2000s. Matthew Perry, Maya Bialik, Disney World guest. <laughs> Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Ron, Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump. <laughs> All right, I think we have a project for the train, Mosh. Sounds good. Everyone, we'll see you from Washington (laughs) tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.